Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. And we're talking about social value. My name's Andrew Teacher. I'm Managing Director for Real Estate in ESG at Montford Real Estate. And we're joined by Alida Obo, who's Director at Socius. Wesley Ankara, who's Director of Social Value at Savile Reserve, part of Savile's. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Great to see you. Great to have you both back. Now, Socius, you've made quite a name for yourselves as taking a real lead when it comes to delivering social value and not just talking about it, thinking about it, going to events and running presentations, but actually getting your hands dirty in the ground, doing it, particularly some of your projects out in Bristol, Cambridge. What are some of the things that you've learned through that journey? I think the biggest learning is that real estate is about people. And actually, when you focus on people, your starting point is always going to be about social value. You know, we are fixated with buildings because that's what we end up doing. So in industry, we focus on how tall is it? How many square footage is it? What's the GDV? The usual things. But actually, the most important part of what we do is people. And when you are focused on people, you've got to think about social value. And what does that mean? Social value is about making sure that Whatever we do, we are starting with how does it impact on people and how can we make a positive impact on people's lives and life chances. In cities that we work in, whether it's Bristol, Cambridge, Milton Keynes, Brighton, you know, there are challenges in some of those cities and we've got to find how the development can be a conduit for change and be a conduit for positive change rather than just ending up with buildings at the end of it. Mm. And Elida, one of the things that you personally pioneered out in Bristol is an arts and cultural centre, isn't it? Tell us about that. What was the genesis of that? And how does that align with the wider project that you guys are delivering? Absolutely. Bristol has a thriving arts and culture scene and we well, were working on this. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great place to do that. Fantastic. I have fond yeah. memories of the 90 metre water slide that I helped crowdfund there about 10 years back. Oh, wow. It was, it's, so that was your doing. Yeah, okay. that's, that's <laughs> through, through, uh, through Space Hive, a civic crowdfunding yeah. platform that I co-founded with a guy called Chris Goulet. But yeah, it's always been... Uh, a Always. city up for fun, mm, which I'm it's, guessing. It's a, it's a really kind of thriving, exciting place to work. I love Bristol. It's one of my, I always say, if I don't live in London, I'll definitely be in Bristol. It's got a real mix of, you know, nationalities, cultures, vibe, you know, and it's a really interesting place to work in. And we were really keen to kind of embed and understand that kind of thriving arts and culture scene rather than just, you know, ignore it as most developments do. So, before the development even started, we engaged the wider arts and culture community. And this was in the middle of COVID. So a lot of that sector was struggling, you know, mm. and sitting at home, figuring out what the future was going to hold. So we worked really closely with lots of cultural groups. And one of the big issues that they have is space. There's lack of creative and cultural space to actually display their work in, to create work in and to showcase that to people. So we decided to give up our um, building over the summer and invite them to you know, make it their home and do some really interesting arts and culture in there. And that has embedded a real focus of culture in that development. And we're going to grow that as the development starts to be built. Mm. And again, it's about, you know, you might argue that that's not social value, but for us, that was about really engaging with that community, helping them kind of have the confidence in the middle of a really challenging time in the world and giving them space to kind of showcase what they could do and then turning that into long-term positive social value and social impact. Mm. Now, Wesley Anchor, you joined Savile's Earth at the start of last month your director of social value there. What was the thinking behind that switch going agency side, having worked for clients for most of your career? So for me, it was on a return to kind of my passion, which is actually to kind of have plenty of options around what and how I work. 
So I've been client-side working for Dominus Group for the last sort of 18 months. It's been a fantastic experience for me. Yeah. But what I realised is obviously, you know, the same situation I had when I was working for Central Living is that you can only work with one developer on a sort of finite number of projects and those projects will take different directions. And Savills obviously came along, had a good conversation with them and I realised actually some of the opportunities on some of the huge projects they work with and whose businesses they work with and actually having an opportunity to, you know, shape what social value looks like to a... 250 company was almost something that I couldn't even imagine turning down. Yeah. So the move is very much career ambition as much as anything else. So it lets you spread the social value love across lots of different projects. Yeah, so I've been at Shavels for a short time and within that period of time I've met many divisions within the business already where you know I can already see the influence of social value on their decision making and processes. Elida, for people that think this is just a bit of PR guff or CSR guff or ESG guff, insert your acronym before guff and repeat... How do you break it down? Because there's been a lot of greenwashing and that's causing the FCA to regulate more effectively on what can be declared as sustainable. And similarly, many would argue it's the same case with social value, where people present stuff they would have done anywhere with some kind of social value ritual. But actually, a lot of things that get talked up aren't particularly additive, are they? I don't disagree with you. Again, our industry has a tendency to elevate certain things as social value when actually it should be what you're doing anyway. It's part of your Section 106 commitments. That yeah, well, we've all be, walked past holdings and said, you know, this development's going to create 2 million jobs and you think, well, really? Yeah, I mean, exactly. And I completely agree with you. I think there's an element of social washing is there and there are some people who are being naughty and making some unsubstantiated claims. I think from our perspective as socios, we've taken a real focus on embedding social value into the way we work. So it's part of our normal business. This is not a separate part of what we do. We don't have to go into a room and talk about social value. We just do it. Mm. And the way we do that is about making sure that every decision we make, we're thinking about how can we make a positive impact as a result of that decision. And it could be simple as what's the tiling going to be on the floor? And then you might think, well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, making a decision about the tiling, where does that tiling come from? Can we think about a different approach to procuring that tiling? Who's the supplier for that tiling? Can it be a local business? Is that local business employing local people? Do they have a representative board or representative company of females and males? or working class people or can that tiling company actually come into a local school and talk about what it means to have a local business in this area so it's really embedding that into the bit it's not just about picking a tiling company no it's i really get that but, 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 but let's go down the wormhole with this example for a mm. second how do you weigh up the different factors though because i suppose let's think about it in the round if your tiling company is using recycled concrete or some sort of recycled material so it's fully sustainable but the ownership and the board of that company is exclusively posh white male. And we're not saying that we won't work with you if your board is not representative. What we're saying to you is we want you to make an effort, actually. Make an effort to the community that you're working in. Mm. And what does that effort mean? It could be something as simple as going into a local school to talk to assembly, or you could be providing some training or work experience for a young person or someone who's trying to get back into work. So it's about thinking about how can you make a positive impact? And we hold the hands of those businesses to help them so that they can understand the simple ways in which they can make an impact in the community that we're working in. And at what point are you and your investors willing to pay more for something that is potentially locally sourced or has been sustainably sourced or is provided by a minority community. Because again, Brexit aside and all of the issues that that's created, procuring tiles, among other things, but clearly same with organic food. If you want something that is grown locally without all nastiness sprayed over it, it's typically going to cost you more. And the same is true with all sorts of 
items that one might procure? I disagree. I don't think it necessarily has to cost you more. I think, you know, there are instances where you might even be cheaper or it might cost you more. But I think if you're making a long-term decision... And it but are you prepared you more, to pay more? That's more the question. I think we are. I think we all are. As an individual, as a consumer myself, if I fundamentally believe that this product better suits my values and I'm willing to pay more, you know, I'm willing to go to body shop and pay more for their products because I believe in the values of the brand and the business. So mm. for me, that's really important to me. So I think if you blow it out on a grander scale, I think most of us are willing to pay more because actually it's aligned with our values. We're making a long-term decision rather than a short-term profit decision. And as we do, we balance profit and purpose. So you've got to make that balanced decision at all times. Mm. Whereas in terms of your experience and the clients that Savile Zerf is advising, how do you guys look at drawing that line between as Elida says, around that point at which you accept a premium on cost, particularly in the current environment where we're staring down a cost of living crisis, we're still going to be paying the Liz Trust premium on mortgage rates for some time to come, and people are a lot more focused on costs as valuations have dipped and interest rates have gone up. Yeah, I mean, the interesting part, obviously, is where we're sitting now in this kind of economic cycle. You know, we're not sitting in a very good place at all. So often, or more often than not, you know, the social side of investment is the first to kind of go. But ultimately, I think this like, is like, you know, for example, the amount we're contributing to overseas aid. Yeah, right? exactly that point. But I think ultimately it provides an opportunity for certain businesses to show that there are ways to still support more socially conscious decision making and still obviously manage, you know, the rising cost issues that businesses are suffering. You know, everyone could be declaring good revenue income for the year, but obviously profits are declining because of costs rising. And I think that's a big issue for companies at the moment. And it probably will be for the next 12 months or so. So ultimately, it's how the social situations of communities that are being impacted by some of the cost of living crises can be supported by the businesses that are still trying to provide you know, amenities, housing and other sort of services that these people use. So I completely take the point and agree with the fact that, you know, myself, I'm in a lucky position where I can obviously afford to be able to pay a premium. But ultimately, I think the bar has shifted. I think some people now have gone below that bar of where buying at a premium is something they're actually able to do because, you know, they had to pay their heating and gas bills, <laughs> which obviously risen significantly. But you would hope, obviously, as the economy sort of hopefully turns around, that these people will be able to then go back to buying more premium products that are more ethically or socially sourced and support those businesses. Because we do need pioneers in all industries and in all retail sectors especially that set the bar of what we should be looking to obviously buy and use because obviously it has a greater impact in a positive way for the environment. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on to B Corp. So I did Socius, you achieved B Corp status a while ago. Talk us through that because again, there's different views on that. Some people see it as a bit of a marketing badge. Others see it as being a genuine value-led organisation that enables different companies and different sectors to align what they're doing and how they act. What was the thinking behind that? What was involved and why did you bother? I mean, when we were setting up Socius uh, a year ago now, we wanted to differentiate ourselves and really stand by our values and what we set the business up as, which was a social impact developer. And this was spun out of first base, We, we spun out it? of first base about 12 months ago, 13 months ago now. And for us, it was about making sure that if we're going to be a social impact developer and we're going to be driven by purpose alongside profit, we wanted a certification that enabled us to stand by that. And B Corp is focused on 
making sure that businesses can be aligned in that way and they can focus on profit, but also balance them with purpose. And we've written that into our articles of association. Every decision we make Mm. will balance profit and purpose. And I think also for us, it's about talking and networking with like-minded businesses. In the real estate industry, we tend to talk to ourselves. We wanted to talk to people from all different sectors, you know, whether it's retailers, gym operators, who are also grappling with how do you focus on social impact and how do you become a people-centered business? So we wanted to do that. And that was a great way for us to do that. But I think most important for us is about the challenge. B Corp certification is quite arduous. It takes a long time and it does ask you to really challenge your business in terms of how what, what are you... What were the biggest to... challenges with it? I mean, it was largely, as a business, we found that we were actually quite aligned with the B Corp values and the requirements. It was really about our supply chain. So we are working with, obviously, a big supply chain of all sorts of companies, from big architecture firms to engineers to landscape architects, PR companies, etc. And some of those businesses aren't particularly aligned with our values, So we have to come to a point where we're saying to those businesses, this is our standpoint. This is how we work. These are the things that are really important to us. And we need you to start to move into that direction. And as I said, we're not asking people to make wholesale changes to their board or to the way they work. But on the project that they're working on with us, they've got to think about how they are working. So, for example, I think I mentioned earlier on, we're recruiting architects. Architects are probably some of our biggest fee earners on our projects. And actually for now, we're saying to our architects, if you're going to work on this project, you need to make a significant commitment to the local community. And that's not just going to, you know, doing a gardening project and volunteering for two hours. We're talking about jobs. We're talking about apprenticeships. We're talking about work experience. We're talking about youth, you know, going into a school and talking about what does architecture mean and getting people to really understand that. So for us, it's more than just what we do as a business, how we then go out to our wider supply chain and get them to do much more in those communities. Mm. I mean, how much of a distraction is measurement, do you think, Wes? I mean, just following on from this point on B Corp, because I think it, I suppose in a business like Socius, that's a relatively nimble, agile, privately owned business, that stuff can fly. But obviously for REITs, listed companies, multinationals, going through a lot of this internal soul seeking can be quite arduous as Elijah says but I don't want to sort of focus on B Corp I'm more interested in measurement of social value projects on the ground and I'm interested in your view on whether you see measurement as a bit of a distraction where people obsess over the paperwork the numbers the spreadsheets whatever the presentation method is and lose sight that actually they need to be helping kids stay out of the criminal justice system or enhance literacy or numeracy or any of these other things that you would argue are the priorities? Look, I think with anything in life, it's about balance. I think that's the key thing. And looking at how the measurement sort of journey that I've been on, so I've been in the sort of social value sector for sort of eight years now, and, and measurement has moved on massively in the last three to four years. I think when I first joined the sector of real estate, there were two companies that were able to claim to be able to measure social value through a kind of portal or kind of measurement framework that could be, you know, data-driven by inputs. But actually now what we have found is there's lots of opportunities to measure data in different ways. And I think because we all live now in a very data-driven world where whether it's by our social media, whether it's via our banking, whether it's by our even our shopping, we are all driven by providing data on a regular basis. So in terms of social value measurement, it is a distraction when the numbers are being sort of presented as the final fact of truth of what's being delivered. And I think I always go back to my social value training when I first entered the sector, which was always about, you know, we make massive assumptions that social value data is as robust as financial data. It isn't. You know, we've accepted the assumptions around management accounting 
for 400 years, we know the number that appears in a you know, set of accounts isn't the true value because actually what has to happen to achieve that number is make assumptions throughout the process of bringing the accounts together. We, for some reason, are obsessed with making sure that every single element of social value is counted when actually it probably isn't possible because the data just doesn't exist yet. Social value, in terms of measurements, you know, 40, 50 years old at best. And actually, in terms of its real kind of talent working towards creating these data sets and these methodologies and these calculators, it's probably only 25 years old. So also we can't make the same comparisons and we can't there have the same beliefs in the, in the numbers that are coming out. What the numbers have been for me and still to this day remain for me are very highly indicative of what's being produced and what's capable of us achieving. And I think that's the best we can hope for at the moment. I would hope 50 years from now, we'll be able to sort of rate social value calculations and accounting in the same guise as we do financial accounting. On the ground, Elida, when you're sat there face to face, eyeball to eyeball with planning committees, parish councils, communities, and you know, you're in some pretty challenging areas, Cambridge particularly, what are the numbers that make the difference? What are the conversations that make the difference? Is this about numbers or is it about theatre? Or is um, it about substance? I, I have a, a bit real, of everything. I, I have an issue with some of the numbers because I think you can back off a certain measurement horse and it can do what it wants for you. And actually you could go somewhere else and it would do something else for you. So I believe in balance. I think some people are driven by numbers. So actually we'll throw the numbers at you and the stats. But I think for me, it's much around the impact on people and the case studies I normally default to. So you use that typical politician, you know, yesterday I met Gary and this is what, you know, Gary's life has changed. I think you've got to tell those stories because I think, you know, people buy into stories, people understand stories much better. But I think actually what for me is the strongest part is about partnerships. What we do for social value, importantly, we deliver social value, but social value doesn't sit and completely sit with us. You know, the important thing is to energise and activate local people to believe in a social value and to deliver it. So we... So give we, me an example. So for example, we've got two big significant schemes in Cambridge. One of those is next to a railway line and we've decided to dedicate a third of the scheme to a public park. Largely because the public parks in central Cambridge are either a cemetery or a couple of tufts of land. Or a shopping centre. Exactly. So we decided to dedicate... And this is a, a, this is, and you've got two projects, haven't we've you? We've got this... two projects. So one is Botanic, which is Botanic Place, which is next to Botanic Gardens. The next one is Devonshire Gardens, which is right next to a railway line. So we decided a third of this scheme will be a public park. And that was in response to local people saying, we want somewhere to kind of have, you know, breathe some nice fresh air and, you know, have a nice public area in the central part of the city. Now, Cambridge is a very unequal society, you know, massive disparities between rich and poor. And one of our ideas was actually, can we create a real focus on sustainable food? Can we encourage and, you know, via biodiversity, but environmental sustainability, but create a proper food growing focus so people can reduce in the distance from farm to plate and encourage people to kind of have cheaper, much more sustainable food. That was our approach. We are not going to do that on our own, you know, and we won't. It doesn't make sense. What we should be doing is finding the right local partners who can deliver that for us. So we went to work with Cambridge Sustainable Food. They created a whole vision for it. And now it's a reality. We are embedding that into our development. That's going to be delivered. And we'll be doing food workshops. We'll be teaching young people about food. We'll be teaching parents. And also we'll be encouraging people from all around the area, whether they live there, work, they visit it, to come and grow and take food with them. And it's those little examples for me, it's about how you build proper partnerships in local areas. And was this all pre-planning? It's all pre-planning, absolutely. So I think when I go into that planning committee, rather than talking about numbers and the fact that I've got 50,000 jobs, as you say, I'm talking about those partnerships because those are real partnerships that we've already developed. We've already got a plan to do that together. And it's just about when we start on site. And I think those partnerships are really crucial for when you're working in various communities across the country. And have you been in a situation where you've done some of this 
and still been refused? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We have, which is rare, actually. In my track record, I've only lost one planning committee so far and we got consent three months later. I think there's an element of, as we said, sometimes there's a lack of trust of developers. You know, fact. You know, I don't think we do ourselves much favours in our industry. And I think that's why we separate ourselves and start with a very people-centred approach embed social value in what we do and we build those partnerships because that brings the credibility that people want to see. They want to see you fly by night. They want to see that you're invested in this community and you've got a long-term plan to work with people to make it a place that people want to be in. And I suppose we'd all agree that that's one reason why there needs to be a better diversity developers because let's be frank, you don't look like the average property developer. You, yep. uh, fact, yeah. I agree with that. <laughs> it's a pretty, I agree pretty, with that. Yep. <laughs> a pretty obvious statement yep. of fact. Mm-hmm. How do you think the industry is responding to that challenge because again we've all seen this in all sorts of projects that we've all been involved in when you go in and you do have a frank conversation and people can have a lot more trust in what you're saying Mm. you get much better outcomes I think the industry has a long way to go. We know whether we like it or not. There's been lots of strides, but there's still lots to do. I think. Uh, Is there too me, much puff and talking? I think for me, I didn't come from a traditional real estate route. So I used to work for MLS, then I worked for a local authority. I kind of fell into housing and then enjoyed it and have stayed ever since. Yeah. And I think it's really important to recognize different routes into real estate. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes, whilst there's no issue with a traditional route, I think it's important for us to make sure that we are recruiting people from a really broad range of experiences because actually we are a people business you know we focus on the real estate predominantly but we are a people business and actually whether you work in hospitality aviation etc your transferable skills should also be relevant in our industry and I think that will make us much more diverse and much more relatable to the wider world and that's a good point isn't it Wes in terms of that relatability because the whole substance of planning and the reason why it's often seen as this real I guess, aggressive confrontational process is because people often just don't relate to the posh white man in a suit sat in front of them telling them how this development is going to be good for their kids. I mean, I slightly disagree. I do think it actually comes down to the fact of how you are creating a vision of what you're trying to work with for the communities you're going into. I think that anyone's willing to engage or relate to anybody, to be quite honest. And I've seen that firsthand in the work that I've done over the last sort of not just eight years in real estate, my whole life. Mm. But it's how you actually genuinely come across and deliver for the people you're talking to. So there's a real element of it doesn't matter what colour you are, that you are believable and you deliver against what you're asking people to buy into. And it's not just real estate. Many sectors have this problem is that actually, you know, there's a lot of guff that goes out. There's a lot of things that are just said that are never delivered upon. And I think that's where, you know, my role within what I've done with real estate has been so important is because I am genuinely passionate about seeing social change. You know, my background prior to real estate was working in youth services. And actually when you're working with young people, for example, you know, you're holding the rest of their lives in your hands in a certain sense. If you let them down once, that could be the last straw for them before going off in a different direction, which actually, you know, because you haven't treated the respect of what their life means to them, real estate's the same. You know, you're going to go into an area, especially if you're looking at regeneration projects, you're shaping a, you know, maybe the next three or four generations of a family's lives by what you're creating for them. So they're not involved in that process. How can they feel you know, that you're committed to delivering for them. And I think this is where real estate has maybe sort of been a bit slow to the mark, is that actually working closely with communities, early engagement is what is key to actually creating the relationships. It's nothing really to do with any kind of inequalities. I think any developer, whether they're a 250 company or whether they're just a small independent, has the ability to go out into communities and engage. There's nothing stopping anyone from doing that. Mm. That's a fair point. On the youth services point, and this is something that, I've become passionate about over the years sort of with my 
involvement in civic crowdfunding and other charities is that something that we're still ignoring you know we've had a lot of policy announcements come out over the last few years on all sorts of things job skills numeracy etc but we've still had a lot of funding cuts for local youth services local sports youth centers crimes going up particularly in cities violent crime as well given the nature of development and regeneration is this something that the real estate sector could be taking more of a proactive stance on helping and supporting? Oh, 100%. I've actually been working on a couple of projects at the moment, which I have kind of lined up to kind of maybe activate in the next six months or so, where, you know, one of the biggest issues with youth services is the support for child mental health. Because actually a lot of the time, these young people that maybe do go into antisocial behaviour or criminality, it's based upon underlying issues. And there's lack of support through schools and education of those issues because there's no funding. But ultimately, if you're a developer and you're making contributions to Section 106, you know, why can't some of those contributions be ring-fenced off for therapy, uh, mentorship, or even work experience opportunities? Because education systems are flawed in the sense that there's a real disparity between what an A-grade student needs and a young child with, you know, special educational needs and Mm. dyslexia. And unfortunately, you know, there's just not enough services and not enough funding to support the disparity between those two people within the same classroom. So ultimately, developers who sometimes build schools as part of their projects should be and can be more involved in the development of the community, especially for young people. So, for example, youth centres, most of them are closing, most of them are failing because they're council run. But ultimately, if developers are building a thousand unit scheme and 300 units of that is social housing, surely you are taking into consideration that within those 300 units of social housing, there may be certain structural social inequalities that will need addressing in a new community you're creating. So ultimately, you know, how do developers do that? That's kind of where social value is really key to drive change and how we look at projects, because we can do that through not just our contributions from Section 106, because we can tie those into that. Mm. But ultimately, by bringing our businesses, values and cultures along the journey, as Alade was saying earlier, you can actually be part of really shaping that change. Mm. No, 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 it's a good point. From your perspective, Lydia, how would you see developers activating that? Because again, it's I think there's a concern sometimes with people, and I've had this as feedback in the past when we've done these sorts of episodes, that sometimes some of this chat is a little bit abstract and that it's very easy to say, engage early, but then you've got a ferocious local community that simply doesn't want you there. doesn't matter what colour your skin is, how good your suit is, they just don't want to hear anything. And that is a reality. You know, we can talk about some of these great examples that you've described in Bristol, Cambridge, but the reality is that, again, we've all been involved with it, certainly you and I are aware in the past, that there are situations where the community just doesn't want to know. So how do you make some of these things a little bit less abstract for people? I think it's back to those real life examples, being relatable, um, you know, having those conversations, you know, real conversations with people and growing up conversations. I think sometimes we shy away from because we think it's going to be confrontational. People don't like you. And actually, we're all human beings and we like to have a chat. So we spend many a times having a coffee in a coffee shop and having those conversations that have nothing to do with the development. Actually, it's about people's lives and the long term impact it's going to have on them. And actually, I think it's about listening and understanding. That's the fundamental part of addressing concerns with local and having a really residents. good looking advisor like Wes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's important to be relatable. I think that makes a big difference. But I think when I hear people say, you know, local community just doesn't want it, I don't agree. Because I think you can get through to people, you can listen to people and understand people, and you can find a mutual point where you agree. I've worked on schemes where we've had, you know, 
people set up petitions of 100,000 saying we do not like this scheme, we do not want it. But at some point we got to a point where we went, okay, this development is going to happen. Now, how can we make it the best for local people? What's going to help to make sure that it delivers what you want long-term for you, your family, and people are going to live here for many years to come. So I think, you know, there is always a way that you can come together and find a mutual point where you agree rather than, you know, sitting on the opposite sides and saying we don't like one another. Mm-hmm. So Wes, in terms of the wider... Savile's Earth platform that you're now part of. How do you see the social value work that you're doing align with other elements that Savile's Earth supports on through the wider planning system, be that pure environmental decarbonisation advisory work? How do you align the different rungs of the ESG ladder? Well, I think that's a definite working process, not just for Savile's Earth, but for the ESG sector as a whole, because obviously we've all taken ESG to heart, I think, in the sector. I think, you know, the traction of social engagement hasn't really happened so far. I think, you know, CSR was almost like the first sort of port of call to see how that happened. Mm. But actually now what we're seeing is that there's a real drive on net zero. Sustainability is very key. Do we demolish buildings? So where does the S fit into all of that? Well, I think, to be honest, everything goes back to people. So the S is really, really important in regards to developing the culture of understanding of why things have to change. And so if, for example, you're talking about sustainability issues, is there an element where the S comes into play? Well, 100%, because actually, you know, if you're talking about creating sustainable buildings, some of the attitudes and behaviours of people occupying those buildings will be very much driven by a broader awareness of how those changes in their lives could change. For example, recycling, for example, their procurement, you know, their consumerism the way that you allow the building to work to support that can all be driven by your social engagement and social interaction with people. So I 100% feel that, you know, over the next few years, how the E, the S and the G work together will fundamentally change for the betterment of development. Mm, mm. That's a good point. And I mean, just bringing things to a close, Elida, in terms of councils and local authorities that, you know, as Wes says, and as we all recognise, need that support, what should they be asking for? Because again, I do think there is an embedded level of cynicism that people have of the development process, either fairly or unfairly. It's an observation, and I would argue a statement of fact. But what could they be asking for and what could they be doing, I suppose, to make this conversation a little bit less fractious? We work with lots of local authorities that are very alert to social value and actually have their own social value plan. And Bristol is very, very sophisticated in terms of social value. And but it's quite, really well it's, with that Bristol's quite a progressive place in all senses. It in always fairness, has been. I agree. I think for me, I think local authorities should be holding developers and development industry much more accountable. I think through the planning process, you know, yes, we've got a section 106 commitments, but if you're making social value commitments, I think you should be holding developers much more accountable. You know, in fact, I'd go as far as saying they should be conditioned and say, you said you're going to do this. We want to see that happening. Mm. I think it's part of local authorities' own procurement. They go out and procure services. And I think a lot of them now are requiring a social value plan alongside that. So if you're going to deliver £100 million of work to the council, you've got to provide a social value plan and how you're going to make sure that you deliver. And I think they've got to do that with everything, not just you're procuring a service. Actually, when you're going out and procuring development partners themselves, they should be holding developers accountable saying, you've got to deliver social value. So I think they're in a position of power to make sure that they get to as much social value for their council as much as possible, but also being a bit more sophisticated so they can have that conversation with, with developers who might want to, you know, social wash and saying, actually, no, this is really important to us. And look, other people are doing it and they're doing it successfully. So it's not laborious. It's not going to be costly. It's better for our community by doing this. So mm. I think they're in that position of power. And when you're commencing on some of these initiatives, and you mentioned that some of them in Cambridge 
occur pre-planning. How do you budget for them? It's part of a planning budget. We make allowances for that already from the get-go. What we do is very early on, we produce a social value plan. And that involves speaking to local councillors, residents, businesses, a wide range of stakeholders. We understand what the challenges are and we create a plan to start to make that happen. That doesn't start when we put a shovel in the ground. That starts straight away. Mm. And for us, that's about credibility. That's showing that we have a long-term plan here. You know, we've got to start now. There's no point in waiting for three years' time. The issues that we've identified are here today. But we budget for that. And I think there is a concern that you're talking about millions of pounds of money. Sometimes this is about bringing people together and being the enabler for things to happen. Mm. Sometimes it's about using our platform to talk and to make sure that people are aware of those challenges. And, no, no, and sometimes but, it is yeah. financial. But we've got to find the money, we'll make the money because actually it's really important for that community. So but it's, also, make it it's also having good ideas. I mean, we saw this with Space Hive in the early years and I was talking about this with the boss of LNQ recently who used to be at City Hall. And Fiona Flesh, especially, she recalled some of these sort of slightly crazy projects that we had in the early days, like the Bristol water slide, which you can Google, <laughs> find the BuzzFeed story on that, or the famous inflatable dinghy canal festival in London, which uh, the Evening Salad didn't like very much. Um, but what we found with Spaceside with these sorts of projects, is, you know, we didn't call it social value back in 2013. I don't know what we called it. We didn't really give it a name, but well, we just called it what it was, civic crafting. But the point really is that we were trying to bring together communities and get people to put their cash in their pockets. So my question at the end of the plug was to really say, when you're looking at these sorts of projects, and this is a question to both of you, is there scope to get other local businesses to put their hand in their pockets? So for example, where you're creating some sort of sustainable food initiative, surely you can be getting Tesco's or Cambridge, Waitrose and Marks. We see ourselves as enabler. That's our role. You know, we do social value ourselves, but actually the biggest part of what we do is enabling other people to do it. I am always astounded sometimes when I go out and speak to major businesses, I'm sure Wesley will say this, who are still grappling with what do you mean by social value? What can I do? I don't know what to do. I I hear that all the time. I do not know where to start with social value. And actually our job is to put the right things in place to help them because we are so embedded in those communities. We know where the need is. We also know what... the opportunities are. So actually, as your sustainable food example, absolutely. We'll go out and speak to some major retailers. We'll speak to local businesses who also might need that supply of food. We'll speak to local residents. We bring all that together and create a really sustainable platform so that actually it's viable, it has a long-term role and local community really benefits from it. And Wes, from your perspective, what are the early baby steps that firms can take for people that don't necessarily want to hire an in-house expert like either of the two of you what are some of the steps that a company can take to well, just to start to make a bit more progress? Because ultimately the win for these firms, the short-term win is de-risking planning. The medium-term win is a much more happy community. And the long-term win is a much stronger brand, which helps you with your planning the future occasions, right? Yeah, look, I think there's two ways to look at this. You can look at it from a short-term lens or a long-term lens. I think the first thing to say to every business is, do away with the short-term lens because it's not going to achieve the long-term legacy piece of what social value should really be to every single business out there. So where you start off, from my opinion, is the understanding the opportunity that development has that no other sector really has to engage with its customer, its stakeholder, its clients. So for me, you take the opportunity to think, right, you know, we are going to have an interface with the community over the development or regeneration of an area. How many other businesses have the opportunity? I wouldn't say many at all. 
because if you look at, say, retail, for example, so you take Sainsbury's, their engagement with their client is to sell food to them, that client leave. You know, you might find opportunities on the community board, but that's about it. So ultimately, take that opportunity and then think what you can do to actually create a legacy. Because unlike a retailer like Sainsbury's, who will be in, in an area for, you know, 100 years selling food to the same people or their kids and their kids' kids, a developer will only be there for a short period of time. And I've always said this from the minute I started in real estate is that there's an ownership here that still hasn't really been grasped upon because if you look at the three main kind of you know, stakeholders within the development sort of cycle or projects, you have the developer, you have the sort of local authority, who obviously have to grant you the consent and then obviously allow you to build, but then you have the community. And if you think about kind of, you know, all three of those developers are the short-term partner, you know, the, the kind of politicians and local authority are kind of almost the mid-range partner and the longer term partner is the community. So always go back to that community early engagement because they are the longer term stakeholder in this process. But ultimately, you know, they're the ones that can continue the legacy. You know, you can't expect Socius or Barclay Homes to 25 years after selling the last unit still be in the community doing stuff. It's just not a feasible option. They need to move on to the next projects and deliver more value in other areas. So how do you build those partnerships? How do you build those kind of communities that will work with a developer and drive on to create something that could be providing value to that community for, you know, 100 years plus. And I think that's what really comes down to it. And this is where the measurement piece is quite interesting because people are trying to say, how do we measure that 50, 60, 70, 100 year value? You can't because you don't know where the world's going in 20 years, let alone 50, 60, 100 years. But what you can do is create the foundation and give people the opportunity to have more options and better choices to create value in the future. And I think that's where ultimately the kind of responsibility for developer lies is creating opportunities that can be taken on board and driven forward and improved upon by the communities that you have built good relationships with. Mm. So I mean one final question just off that point that Wes made, Elida, about engagement and around creating those future options. What can developers do to I suppose to bring people in from the outside, particularly when you've got, as you were describing a bit earlier on, when you've got some public realms to work with, you've got retail or commercial units that you might be repositioning or creating within a mixed-use scheme, what are some of the processes or the policies that developers should consider setting in place to make all these things fully transparent and engage as, as wide a pool of people as possible? I think making that engagement process really valuable, you know, when you start, if you listen and understand what people's needs, concerns, ambitions, aspirations are, it makes your development a better place. You know, it's fact. And I think sometimes the engagement process can be quite tick boxy. People don't see the value at the end of it, but we take it extremely seriously. So we're in listening mode. We're hearing all the things mm. people want. And Do you actually, think people we... think that they have to listen and respond to everyone? Do you think people are maybe afraid of going, actually, you know what, we'll do this religious bookshop for a specific religion and we'll ignore the fact that it might piss off other people but we think actually that's the right thing to do do you think there's a level of fear that stops stuff happening a hundred percent there's a level of fear and there's a lack of understanding as well it's not people who shout the loudest i think there's an element of you think because engagement is not but about planning shouting is so planning often is a regime of he who shouts loudest i disagree wins. i think you've got to have a balanced rounded view and i think people are sensible enough to see that just because you're shouting aloud doesn't mean your opinion is more valid and i think by taking that time to understand what those ambitions and 
and aspirations are locally, you get a better development. For example, our scheme in Cambridge, we have a load of ground floor retail units. And as I already mentioned previously, the public park was a direct response to what local people wanted. Mm. But a ground floor retail units, you know, we could have decided that it would all be, you know, nice bougie cafes and lots of lovely drinking spaces. But actually, what did the local community want? Based on that, we talked about the demographic. They wanted arts and culture space. They wanted space to come and create stuff in. So we're putting in a arts and culture space that's going to be managed by a local Mm. enterprise business. They wanted something I'd never heard of previously, but I now know lots about, called library of things. Because not everyone needs a lawnmower. Actually, what you can do is have two lawnmowers that we buy and then we hire it out. And so it's a library of things rather than of books. But actually, it's a very community-based space where people come together, they have a chat, they get to know their neighbours and they hire out a tool that they don't need to buy because they only need it for a few hours a day or over the weekend rather than having it all the time. We're putting in their children's crash. And that was, again, intentionally locally. People wanted it locally, but also we know that what the local crashes do they bring people together you bring your child in there you don't even have to live in a development you bring your child in from wherever you live you get to know people locally you have a chat you might stop at a coffee shop and sit there we're making decisions about the types of public realm and the types of places that we're going to put in that development mm. directly as a result of engagement but also because we know it responds to a need from the community the community want to be together they want places that they can mm. get together and just grow and have conversations and be alongside one another and actually those decisions about those ground floor retail spaces were largely informed by that and whereas on that point, are there no-nos? Are there things that people just say, hey, yeah, I'm going to listen, I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to do that? So I, I think, that again, it goes back to that point I made earlier about looking at all the stakeholders in this process and what do they have a shared interest in not seeing? They have a shared interest in not seeing you know, poverty increase and deprivation increase and marginalization increase. So, you know, if you're a developer you should really understand what needs to go into community. You know, does a new development need a betting shop next to a social housing part of your development? Absolutely not. You know, does it need multiple vape shops? No, it doesn't. Because obviously these things aren't building towards positive outcomes such as health and well-being, you know, and people sort of managing the way out of debt. So ultimately there's a responsibility, I think, in terms of how you're presenting a project if you're a developer to understand the needs of a community before you talk to the community, because actually then you're showing a clear indication that you care and I think I go back to my point from earlier is that it's about genuine engagement. It's about genuinely showing and believing in what you're going to do is going to improve something. So if you go to a community and you basically make it very clear that you're going to be creating a public park, you're going to be putting a library of things and you're going to be creating arts and culture space, they may have no input into what's coming forward beyond that because you've done all the work for them because actually everything you've cited, you have clearly shown you understood the need of that community anyway. But actually, if they come back and say, well, actually, we kind of need more five-a-side pitches and a skateboard park, you have the ability to adapt and be flexible within your scheme to deliver what they want. But ultimately, going to a community with a blank sheet of paper, I don't necessarily think works, because I think sometimes, actually, you know, we have to be really honest about what we need to achieve from development. And developers obviously need to achieve profit, and they need to achieve investment for that scheme, and they need to be able to deliver that scheme. So there's no point in sort of letting a local community say, hey, this is our wish list and not be able to deliver against any of it because actually it's an unfundable development, for mm. example. And I think we have different use classes which lend themselves to certain needs from a developer point of view and an investment point of view as much as a community point of view. Mm. So you have to be very mindful about what you're willing to say to a community in regards to engagement and developing their community for them. But you can actually kind of, from a developer point of view, give good guidance and your kind of benchmark of what you can do mm. and build upon that position. Which refers to what Olaide was saying earlier about 
getting your architects involved and working as a single team. And yeah, so it's a good point. So keep your focus, but also be brave and don't be afraid of picking a niche that you think might cut through. So be brave, challenge, be curious and encourage your whole team to think about people rather than just the buildings. Awesome. Well, you're very welcome to come around and do my lawn anytime you want. Elijah. Great to see you. Great to see Wes. So it's Wesley Anker, a director of social value for Savile's Earth, Elide Obo, who's director at Socius. Fantastic to see you both on here. You can subscribe to PropCast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, SoundCloud, all those other places where you can get podcasts from. And you can obviously keep checking propertyweek.com for the latest property news updates. I've been Andrew Teacher. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again very soon.